Well, congratulations. We've made it through another book, another chapter in the book of John. In fact, last week we finished John chapter 11, and today we're going to be starting John chapter 12, if you want to turn there with me. Uh, I hope that you remember why we've committed this whole year as a church family to work through the Gospel of John. It's to learn how to live and to love like Jesus. And I really have enjoyed the perspective and the experience that John writes his Gospel. If you remember when we kicked off this journey, we likened it to like four people going to see a movie or a sporting event, uh, to see a concert, and they, they all start telling about their experience. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have each done to share the life and the ministry of Jesus with us. And the Gospel of John so far, it's had all kinds of incredible moments. And I've made a list of just some of the highlights for me so far. I love how John the Baptist introduces Jesus. He declares him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he also differentiates himself from Jesus. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. That's just how important Jesus is. I love in John chapter 3 when Jesus compares himself to the snake on the pole. And if you're not familiar with that moment, it comes from the Old Testament when the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness and they're complaining. It's like, have you ever been on a family vacation where everybody around you is complaining? That's kind of the picture. Well, God gets so kind of upset about that. He sends poisonous snakes among them and they start dying. But if they look at the snake on the pole, they were healed. And Jesus compares himself when talking to Nicodemus to being that snake on the pole. I mean, you can't overlook the incredible miracles like Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, right? I would have loved to preach on that, but Andrew Bondurant and Matt Volkman kind of beat me to the punch. That was one that they wanted to share about. But Jesus turning the water into wine, Jesus uh, healing the man who had been born blind, giving uh, the ability to walk to that man paralyzed. I mean, those are incredible moments in the Gospel of John. I wondered if we'd take a few minutes just as we begin today thinking about what is your favorite moment so far in the life and ministry of Jesus recorded by John. And also maybe what's one thing you're learning about how to live and love like Jesus. So we're actually going to give some time to do this. If you're watching online, I hope that you'll go to the chat and share your answers there. If you're worshiping in person with us on the West Campus or in Newburgh or at home with some uh, family members or friends, I want you to take a few minutes and answer these two questions. Anybody everywhere could pick up your journal and maybe write down these questions and think about them now or think about them a little bit later today. Or if you want, you could text your answers to 812-858-8668. So we're going to give you a few minutes to do that. Here are the two questions we want you to think about. What's your favorite moment from the life of Jesus recorded by John? And what's one thing that you're learning about living and loving like Jesus? Discuss. Go.
Well, I shared some of my favorite moments, but I'd say if there's one thing I've learned about from the life and ministry of Jesus, how to live in love like him, it would be just to stay focused like he was on the work that God had given him to do. And I think about that as a husband. I think about that as a father. I certainly think about that as a, a pastor and leader. And if you're anything like me, the past 15 weeks of COVID has wanted to drive that away from me. And so I'm just trying to learn from Jesus how to live in love like him, how to stay focused on the, on the calling that he's given me, not just me, but to all of us. You know, if I had to limit it to just one moment or one moment in the life from Jesus, it would have to have to do with some interaction he had with a person. In fact, uh, John 12, the moment we're going to look at today is actually one of my favorite interactions that Jesus had with a person. I hope you've turned there by now. Just to provide some context, we're actually entering the last nine chapters of the Gospel of John. And they all record the basically the last week and the last 40 days that Jesus was on earth. In fact, from the moment he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey until the moment he was sucked up into heaven, ascending back to his father, that's what's recorded in the last nine chapters. We're actually transferring or transitioning from what's been called the book of signs to what's now called the book of glory. And we are going to see Jesus as our servant king. John chapter 12 opens by saying this, six days before the Passover. If you are familiar with the Passover, it was a festivist time, as Seinfeld would say. It was the highlight of the Jewish calendar. It was a time when everybody went to the city to worship, to make sacrifices. It was more significant theologically than it was chronologically. If you remember, the Hebrew day started with sunset, not sunrise. And so six days before the Passover would be Saturday, which actually started on Friday evening. Let's pick up in John chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Each of the four gospel accounts record a very similar moment of Jesus having this dinner. Now, uh, John is very similar to Matthew and Mark. Luke is kind of out there on his own. And most people believe that Luke is describing a completely different moment. And so this morning, I want to kind of walk through Matthew, Mark, and John's uh, picture of this. I'll try to sprinkle in some information from those other two accounts. All three mentioned that this moment occurred in Bethany. If you read just John's account, you might think that this meal, this banquet is happening in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But Matthew and Mark say that it's occurring at the home of Simon the leper. We don't read anything else about this specific Simon the leper other than this moment he hosts this banquet in honor of Jesus. Something that Simon the leper may have been somebody that Jesus healed because if he was hosting a banquet, he would no longer be leprous. Others have thought that Simon actually might be the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but that's a little bit theoretical. There's really no um, historical proof of that. Regardless, we see this moment happening. It's a banquet. It's a meal. People in the Jewish uh, life, they ate all throughout the day. They kind of grazed throughout the day. But a meal it was usually in the evening. It was what we would call dinner or supper. And this right here was a banquet. Now, Martha was there and she's true to form as she was introduced in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus actually came to the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. 
We, when they were there, Martha was busy in the kitchen. In fact, she kind of came to Jesus and complained that her sister Mary wasn't helping out a lot, right? Well, in this uh, meal, Martha is also serving. Lazarus is there and he is reclining with the others at the table. Others probably were most likely just men. It wouldn't have been common for a woman to be sitting at the table enjoying the meal. Now, when Jesus responds to Martha's complaint in Luke 10, he says something significant. He says that Martha, you are worried about a lot of things, but there's only one thing that really is important. And Mary has chosen what is better, Jesus says. He says it wouldn't be taken from her. And we see that same thing happening here in this moment with Mary. First of all, Lazarus is there and they're reclining at the table. And so to get a picture of that, you must recognize that in the ancient world, meals were gathering around a table that was very low to the ground. And the guests there would be reclining with their head very close to that table, kind of resting on an elbow, eating with one hand. That's kind of the picture that you see here. Lazarus, Jesus, and some others are gathered at the table eating. And then Mary comes in, verse 3. Mary took a point of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Every mention of Mary in the New Testament involves her being at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus while he teaches. When Jesus comes to the tomb of her brother Lazarus, who had just died, she kneels at the feet of Jesus. And now in chapter 12, she's at the feet of Jesus for a different purpose. And that purpose is worship. Sitting at the feet of, uh, feet of anyone was a sign of a disciple who was giving respect and actually identifying who their rabbi or who their teacher was. And Mary is certainly signifying that Jesus is her teacher. It appears that the love and faith that was described about Mary in Luke chapter 10 has only grown now and we see it being fleshed out even more in John chapter 12. This is probably not a bad time for Martha to be a lot more like her sister as much as that might pain her. And it's also a good time for the rest of us to learn from her example. Mary demonstrates worship at its purest form. I think many would point to the Gospel of John to chapter four and say, well, that's where worship's defined, where Jesus tells the woman at the well that, that God wants worshipers who are full of spirit and truth. But I think in John chapter 12, we see Mary displaying what true worship actually looks like. True worship is first of all, heartfelt. This is a tender moment between Mary and Jesus. She's quietly and humbly approaching him to let him know that she believes in him and that she loves him. It might be because of his wise and enlightened teaching. It might be because of the fact that he just raised her brother from the dead. But her motivation is pure and sincere and she can't help express just how she feels about Jesus to him. Pure worship is also sacrificial. All three gospels state that she took a significant amount of pure, expensive perfume and poured it out on Jesus. This perfume was made from pure nard. That's not to be confused with pure lard. If you know what lard is, this is nothing like that, okay? Pure nard was uh, a perfume that was extracted from a plant that's found in the Himalayan region of northern India. It was expensive because of the process it took to extract this liquid form from the plant. 
A pint or a pound is what the other two gospels say. It was equal to half a liter. Now that is a lot of perfume. One of the most expensive perfumes in our day today is Chanel number no. five. Maybe some of you wear Chanel number no. five. Here's our friend Giselle representing Chanel number no. five. That's a pretty big bottle there. Let's just assume that you wanted to purchase one fluid ounce of Chanel number no. five. It would cost you about 350 bucks. That's a lot of change for Valentine's Day. I don't know how much you spend on your wife or significant other to buy her perfume. But let's say you wanted to buy as much as Mary poured on the feet of Jesus. That would be about 17 fluid ounces, which would equivalent to about $5,800. Now that's a lot of perfume. That's a lot of chunk of change. And all three gospels point out that this was an expensive, a costly way to express Mary's love for Jesus. I think it, it, uh, it reflects the heart of David when he said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, that I will not offer to God a sacrifice that cost me nothing. Pure worship is heartfelt, it's sacrificial, and it's also unapologetic. Mary took down her hair and he, she wiped the feet of Jesus with it. Now, respectful women in this culture would have never let anyone other than their husband see her hair. They never unbound their hair in public. In fact, this was kind of seen as being scandalous. One commentator said it would be like a woman hiking up her skirt to mid thigh in public. And we'd all be a little bit aghast at that. But this was not an immoral act. This was an act of humility. Mary didn't care what people thought of her. She took the lowliest form known in that culture that day as a servant who would wash the other's feet. And I think this moment foreshadows what we'll see in John 13, Jesus taking that same posture and washing his disciples' feet, what actually is my favorite moment in the entire Gospel of John. But pure worship is heartfelt, it's sacrificial, it's unapologetic, and it's also impactful. John 12 verse 3 says, the whole house was filled with the fragrance. We don't worship for any other person other than an audience of one, and that's for God. But people should recognize our love for God when they see us worshiping. Paul tells the Corinthians that if an unbeliever came into a house of worship or a gathering of worship, they should feel the presence of God just by the way people are worshiping God. And then in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says these words, we spread the aroma of the knowledge of God everywhere. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus saying in this moment that wherever the gospel is preached, that what Mary has done will be told everywhere. What a powerful moment of worship. Now I wonder, how would you evaluate your motivation, your posture, even your participation in worship when we see Mary displaying what worship really looks like? When you have the opportunity to sing, do you like to just complain about the song choice or how loud it is or how soft it is? Do you kind of get bummed out with who might be singing or who might not be singing? Do you get distracted by what other people might think of you as you express your love to God through worship and music? What about when it comes time to give? Do you quickly calculate just how big of a check you're writing and kind of choke at the fact of what 10% might equal in your world if you want to tithe? Do you think about how that money's gonna be used and, and maybe you wanna uh, kind of leverage your influence by the amount that you might give? Or do you demand that your contribution be spent in a certain way? 
Do you wonder what other people will think when they see you giving or maybe not giving? When you serve at your home or in the community or in your workplace, are you distracted, maybe even frustrated about the fact that maybe others aren't serving just as much as you might be? Are you sincere? Are you sacrificial? Are you single focused? Are you surrendered to who and to how you are worshiping? I also wonder if you've ever had a moment that's been abruptly interrupted and it kind of fizzled out or kind of got ruined. Maybe uh, you prepare a special meal or you want to have a celebration for your family and everyone seems to not show up because they had other plans. Maybe you plan a romantic moment with your spouse and the kids come home early. Maybe you spend a lot of money on a great vacation and the kids bicker the whole time. Or maybe you're training for a marathon and 30 days before the actual event, you bust your ankle and can't participate. Or maybe I'm just alone in these thoughts, but like all of those have happened to me and it just seems to like let the air out of the room. Well, let's see what happened in this moment where Mary has been worshiping Jesus. Verse four, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a, a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Before we pick on Judas the Iscariot, we will, and he's well-deserving. I think it's interesting that both Matthew and Mark notice that it's all the disciples or everybody who sees this moment who have the same complaint that Judas does. They are indignant over such waste. They all have the same argument. This perfume could have been, even should have been sold, and that money used to care for the poor. Now, that seems like a fair and innocent question, especially if you're a CPA or maybe you're a Dave Ramsey, a person who follows him. I mean, good biblical spiritual stewardship or care for the poor is not what Jesus is addressing in this moment. It's actually motivation. John is the only gospel writer who kind of peels back the curtain to Judas's heart. Judas's motivation was not caring for the poor, John says. Jesus will address that in just a moment. But instead, John states that Judas was the trusted treasurer of the band of Jesus' followers. Mark tells us that there were many people who gave financially to fund Jesus' ministry because Jesus has said that he didn't own a home, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Really, the only possession that Jesus is known of having is just the clothes that he had on his back. And so people would give funds so that Jesus' needs would be taken care of. These funds were also used to care for the poor. There was a tradition during the Passover season that money would be given and, and, and care for the poor would happen. In fact, when Judas leaves the upper room, all the other disciples think that he's actually going to do something like this, to go and take care of the poor. But what the disciples didn't know, that as treasurer, Judas used to help himself to the funds for his own personal benefit. His objection to what Mary has just done is uh, not so much uh, like a concern from the poor, but he's watching an opportunity for significant funds, funds that would have been at his disposal. Most people think like fifteen to $20,000 of funds go up in thin air. 
Right before 4th of July, my wife and I were at Sam's Club getting some supplies. And as we walked in, they had a whole display of fireworks. And they had various sizes and various costs for those fireworks. And I said, oh, honey, please, 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 can we buy some fireworks? Look, it's only $100. And she said, if you want to go and spend the money on $100, you should just take that and burn it. It's just the same thing. I was like, yeah, but this would be more fun. Needless to say, we ended up watching fireworks on TV. It was really fun. It was a great evening. And, uh, but Judas is watching this moment. And there's an incredible fragrance filling the air. But to Judas, it was not a pleasant aroma. One of the commentators said that Judas is the kind of man who always thinks about money, who always has money on his mind. He's always calculating the cost. We see in his heart a love for money, not in just this moment, But both Matthew and Mark also, right after this moment, said it's that moment where Judas went to the chief priest and who asked for some money if he would betray Jesus to them. I think it's interesting how Jesus responds to Judas and how he comes to Mary's defense. Look what he says in verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. In this moment, Jesus is quoted in Matthew and Mark as saying, what she's done is a beautiful thing. The original language is a little bit hard to translate into English, but here's what most people believe. First of all, Mary had this expensive perfume as an heirloom and it had one purpose. She was saving it up so that when one of her loved ones died, she would anoint their body with this perfume to keep the smell down. Now it might've been readily available to her because remember her brother had just died a week earlier. She used this perfume though, not to anoint Jesus for his burial, but as an act of worship. But Jesus in this moment alludes to the fact, kind of a prophecy, that Mary has anointed him for his burial because one week from now, Jesus will have been been killed. He will have been buried. And John 19 records that Jesus' body was anointed with perfumes and spices, again, to keep the the smell down. Mary, I don't think, realized what was actually the, the deeper significance in this moment. But one thing I do know, She would not be at the grave of Jesus saying, oh, I wish I would have told him I loved him before he died. Jesus in this moment actually quotes the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 15, which shares about the responsibility that God's people have to care for the poor. He was not dismissing that responsibility in this moment. In fact, it's a direct quote when he says, the poor you will always have with you. And the rest of the law says, so take care of the poor. He was not dismissing that responsibility, but what he was doing was stressing that what Mary had done was not a waste. He was stressing the importance of worshiping and serving others, taking care of the poor. It's not an either or, it's actually an and. D.A. Carson says this, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes mask a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. What he's saying is worship and serving others, taking care of the poor should go hand in hand. They are not opposing ideas. I want to finish the rest of of this moment and then we'll come back to some practical takeaways. Look at verse nine. 
Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also because of Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. And from, uh, on, uh, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This might be the first public moment that Lazarus has been seen since being resurrected. And just like we saw last week, many people were coming to faith in Jesus because of this miracle. In fact, the New Revised Standard Version says that they were deserting the chief priest and choosing allegiance with Jesus. The religious leaders, as a reaction, decided to add Lazarus to their hit list, even though we never see them killing Lazarus materializing. They eventually do kill Jesus. They kill his half-brother James. They kill Stephen and many others. And in this moment, we see the religious leaders are just acting irrationally. They're full of hatred and sin due to their unbelief. Sin is a slippery slope. I think that's why Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.27, don't give the devil a foothold. James 4.7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What stands out to me in this moment in the life of Jesus is the stark contrast between Mary and Judas. Mary is freely and sacrificially worshiping while Judas is greedily and selfishly stealing. While there are many ways that you and I can worship, the context of this passage really addresses our worship through giving. Giving has always been and still is an act of worship. The Old Testament prescribes many ways to bring an offering to God. But it always stresses that a willing heart and a sacrificial spirit are at the heart of our expression of love and faith when we give. Mary's display of true worship and giving is a great example for us to follow. It was heartfelt. It was sacrificial. It was unapologetic. It was impactful. I'd also say that it was extravagant. The amount of perfume that Mary poured on Jesus didn't just cover his feet, but Matthew and Mark say that it covered his, his head. In fact, Jesus says, she's anointed my entire body. That's the picture of extravagance. I wonder which words would, would be used to describe your act of worship through giving. Heartfelt, sacrificial, unapologetic, impactful, or maybe obligatory, stingy prideful, limited. I think Judas is acting out the commandment against God's people that God makes himself in Malachi chapter three. You might be familiar with these words. Listen to what God says. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. And then he goes on to say this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and I'll see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Tithing is an Old Testament and a New Testament principle. Most people are familiar with the Old Testament teaching, but they don't realize that in, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus directs and kind of attacks the religious leaders who were really good at tithing everything that belonged to them, but they were really bad at caring for the poor. And in that moment, Jesus says, you should do both. 
You should tithe and, and you give your offerings, but you should also care for, have compassion toward those who have little. And so Jesus, once again, is cementing this idea of worship and giving. You know, I believe that tithing is a biblical principle. It, it just kind of teaches us to give what to God first and to also give to God our best. I don't think it should be viewed legalistic and I also don't think it should be viewed as a limit. I would describe tithing, giving 10% of what God has given you as the training wheels to living a life of generosity, to living a life that worships God through giving. Our youngest has just got a, a consistent job. She's worked some other odd jobs. She's done some babysitting, but now she's gainfully employed and she has a paycheck that comes every two weeks. And so when she got her first paycheck, we sat down with her to kind of describe what a, what a healthy money management looks like. My wife is the expert of our house, but I was there along for the ride. But one of the things I contributed to the conversation was to teach her how to tithe. And one of the things I wanted her to understand is that tithing is just a gateway into living a life that honors God and that also teaches how to live a generous life. And I told her the math is not that hard. All you have to do is move the decimal point one point to the left. And so I gave her some examples. I think they're here on the screen. If God gives you $100 and you want to figure out what's 10% of that, all you have to do is move the decimal point one place to the left. If you have $100, then $10 is a tithe. It's not real hard math. If God gives you 500, well, then you just move that decimal point, one point to the left and $50. Same thing with a thousand. If it goes off of, you know, even numbers, you can still use that one decimal point and move it to the left, right? And I watched her eyes getting bigger and bigger as we talked about what 10% would mean of her giving that to God. And my quick response to her was, aren't you glad God didn't say 90%? That's what I wanna share with you today. That if you're begrudging about 10%, look at the example of Jesus. He didn't just give 10% of his life. He didn't say, well, I'll just give my big toe for uh, you so that you can go to heaven. I'll just give my right arm. He actually said, I will give my entire life. And when I look at Jesus' example, I can get a clear picture of what it looks like to worship God through giving and to do it with a, a sincere heart to do so unapologetically, to do that sacrificially, and certainly so that there's an impact made. In Acts 5, we read about uh, two people, Ananias and Sapphira, and they kind of followed the example of Judas. They sold a piece of property and they lied about the amount so they could keep some for themselves. And when Peter challenges him about that, he said, it was your money to do with it whatever you wanted. Why did you lie and try to trick the Holy Spirit? Why didn't you just give generously? And so that's a powerful example of what it looks like not to follow the example of Mary. You and I have to make a choice. When it comes to this act of worship through giving, are we going to be like Judas? Are we going to be like Mary? And I know that those extremes feel really far apart. And so instead of trying to be more like Judas, I want to encourage you to find wherever you are right now and try to move to be more and more like Mary. I think Mary reflects what it looks like to live in love like Jesus when it comes to this worship through giving. Jesus was certainly heartfelt in his obedience to God and the commandment to, of his heavenly father. He was certainly sacrificial in offering his life as a ransom for our sins. He was certainly unapologetic. He didn't care what people thought about him. He was laser focused on pleasing God and God alone. And he was certainly impactful in his giving. He brought salvation 
to all who believe. God is the best gift giver. And Jesus reflects God's character as a powerful example for us to follow. In fact, Paul uses Jesus as the best example to follow when it comes to worshiping God through giving. Paul uses these words in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5 and 7 through 9. He says this, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectation. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. And then Paul says, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And then he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's a powerful example to follow. This past week, we sent a letter to our church family just celebrating what God's been up to in the first half of this year. And as part of that email, we celebrated the generosity of the people who make up the Crossroads Church family. And we want to thank you for those who have been giving generously and sacrificially. It's because of our generosity that God's work continues through this church, in this community, and throughout the world. But we also wanted to offer a challenge to all of us to continue to grow in our generosity. For some of you to get off the bench and into the game. For others, for you to not see what you've already done, but see what God might be leading you to do more. And I think it reflects what Jesus' example is in this moment. It reflects the heart of Mary as she pours out her heart in worship by giving. She was heartfelt. She was sacrificial. She was unapologetic and she was impactful. And so earlier in our service, we've already taken the time to reflect on how much God has given us, how Jesus gave his life for us by celebrating communion. And so now we're going to have a moment where we can respond in worship by giving. And so before we do, I just want to ask you to take some mental inventory. Some, so do a heart check of your own heart as I will mine. First of all, is your worship through giving, is it heartfelt? I want you to give in obedience because you love God and you want to be part of what he's doing. You're giving because you want your giving to reflect how much you love God. It is, we're encouraged to give generously and I want you to lean into that. I want your, your generosity to be an overflow of your love. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And this morning we've been shown that tithing is still a command. So that's a good benchmark for you to look at. And that's what leads us to the next, the sacrificial. For some of you to give 10% of what God has given you, it's going to have, require you to go back to your budget and make some adjustments. It might feel like a significant sacrifice to move from 2% to 10%. But I also want to challenge those who might have rested at 10% thinking that God's got a big smile on his face. He's pleased with your act of worship when you give generously. Now I want to encourage you to continue to excel in this act of worship as Paul commanded and, and encouraged the Corinthians. 
I want our giving to be unapologetic. I don't want you to give because you're trying to outdo the Joneses. I don't want your giving to be worried about who's going to see or who might not see. I want your giving to be unapologetic. It's just an expression of your love for God and you don't care what anybody thinks. And last of all, I want to encourage you that when you give generously, it is impactful. You're joining God in what he's doing through this church, through his church, in this community and around the world. And my encouragement for all of us would be to follow the example of Mary, who followed the example of Jesus, who worshiped Jesus. It was heartfelt. It was sacrificial. It was unapologetic. It was impactful. And my prayer is that my giving and your giving would be the same. Let me pray and then I'll give you a moment to consider this question. What's one way that you can grow in your worship through giving as demonstrated by Mary and as modeled by Jesus? Would you pray with me? God, thank you for showing us what it looks like to give generously. God, you gave us Jesus. We really don't need any other motivation than to pry our grimy fingers off of all that you've given us. It all came from you. You've asked us just to worship you and join you by giving back to you generously. And I pray that God, that would take place. That God, we wouldn't just see a goal of 10%, we would see a, a lifestyle of generosity. But God, as we give and as we worship you through giving, I pray that you would use the gifts that you receive to further your great name, that your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, that our giving would be a demonstration that you are our king, you're our God, and we're building our life, not on the things of this world, but on the things of you. God, would you lead us in this time of giving? We pray through Christ, amen.